You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're We're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. Mic check, please. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Ducks on the Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Jennings. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. My name is John Gordon. I'll be your host. And I'm your host, Katie Burke. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you, the DU Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Brazier. Today we have another episode where we're going to talk about and sort of an update on the latest with highly pathogenic avian influenza. It's a topic that we've discussed a couple of times already. We have a new guest that I'm really excited to join to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast, Dr. Julie Lenock, National Coordinator for USDA APHIS Wildlife Services Wildlife Disease Program. Dr. Lenock, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. You might hold the distinction of having the longest title that we have yet used on the podcast. <laughs> we could just say that, that that I work with the National Wildlife Disease Program and call, call that good. <laughs> <laughs> well, all the same, it's uh, it's great to have you here. Uh, you are based out of Fort Collins, if I remember correctly. Is that right? That is correct. Our, our, our team is based in Fort Collins um, for the coordination group, but we have field a disease biologist throughout the United States who, of course, are, are working on on this and many other outbreaks and, and disease situations. So we're, we're a national program. If you don't mind, maybe take a few minutes to introduce our audience to yourself, your background, how you ended up in the position that you're in, and, and maybe a couple of the places you've stopped along the way. Sure. Uh, I'm a veterinary epidemiologist by training, 
And I've worked for the United States Department of Agriculture for about six years. Um, I've been in the position I'm in right now as the national coordinator for around a year and a half and uh, have previously served within the USDA veterinary services, also working on outbreak and disease programs. And prior to that, I had a a postdoc fellowship for the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, and I've worked with the Department of Interior at the National Wildlife Health Center. So I've kind of had a meandering path doing various roles in infectious disease and um, disease control programs, always at this wildlife livestock interface and um, working on disease emergence. We're here today to talk with you about highly pathogenic avian influenza, and it really, it reared its head, so to speak, uh, earlier this year, well, late last year, but it has really kind of taken off and spread um, in a a not so welcome fashion here over the course of this year. And so I do know that it is consuming a significant portion of your time right now. But just briefly, what other big wildlife disease um, issues are, is your group working on? I'm certain that chronic wasting disease is near the top of that list, but any others that, that our listeners would have heard about? No, that it's great, great question. So yeah, chronic wasting disease, of course, a, a big concern for our cervid deer, um, deer folks, and, and many of our state managers. We also work on African swine fever, which is a disease that we do not have in the United States, but was recently detected in the Caribbean, and that disease is a threat to our pork industry. So we have uh, large teams working in the Caribbean to assist. Um, other countries and have basically uh, escalated our our surveillance and our testing in feral swine population where that could be a detection. So we're working on African swine fever in the southern part of the United States and the Caribbean, chronic wasting disease in in multiple states, and um, highly pathogenic avian influenza, as you said, which has been a a large-scale outbreak um, essentially uh, across the U.S. right now. Here's one of those questions that occurred to me as you were talking there, but I, I'm kind of curious, how much of the work and mission of your your agency is driven by concerns for our commercial industries, our commercial meat, uh, and I guess agricultural industries versus concern for the wildlife populations themselves? You know, both all are affected, but I'm kind of curious about the relative priorities of those within uh, within your agency. So wildlife disease and, and wildlife management are, are complicated, and we, we work with multiple partner agencies um, because we have slightly different mission spaces, as, as you just suggested. So I work for the Department of Agriculture, and the diseases that I'm assigned to and that we prioritize in general are those diseases that may exist in wildlife that are a threat to agricultural products or, or systems. Some of those same diseases could be an actual threat to the wildlife populations themselves. And um, we work very closely with our colleagues at the Department of Interior, um, both the USGS National Wildlife Health Center, the Southern Cooperative Wildlife Disease Study in Georgia, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And in some cases, there's there's other partner um, state and tribal partner agencies Um, And I can give you a quick example Um, in this highly pathogenic avian influenza outbreak. 
It has spilled over into marine mammals. We've had detections in gray seals and harbor seals off the coast of Maine. And NOAA, the National Oceanic um, Administration, is the lead for marine mammal events. And so in that case, we're working with Department of Agriculture, Department of Interior, and NOAA, all on the exact same outbreak because it has its fingers and tentacles going so many different directions. So um, wildlife have a lot of people who work on it, and um, I'm happy to report how well that group does together. And uh, and we basically just share information and try not to duplicate things, but stay in our lane and, and provide useful information back and forth to each other. I appreciate that answer. And, and I wanted to ask that question because you know, a lot of the people listening to this episode, as we start talking about highly pathogenic avian influenza and the name of your, your program is Wildlife Disease Program, there may be a temptation to think about, oh, well, this is only related to the wildlife themselves, but that couldn't be farther from the truth. And it relates to every, it's important to pretty much every single person in this country and in North America, when you start talking about it's its effect on our food supply. It not only affects, has a potential to affect the that supply, literally supply of domestically produced food, but also the price of that food, as well as the the economies that are connected to those uh, to, to those to that food supply, and a whole host of other things, jobs, etc. Uh, anything to add to that to kind of put a perspective on it on why this is important to every person listening. It's important, exactly as you said, and the the USDA works closely with states and poultry industry to prevent avian influenza from becoming established in the U.S. poultry population. One of the focuses of that, of course, is keeping our nation's poultry free from avian influenza, which does help protect and, and secure both our farmers' livelihoods and the availability and cost of food. So there, there's a focus on the protection of our domestic birds. In this case, in the current 22 outbreak, we have seen a large amount of detections in backyard flocks. So this could be everything from a, a person in town who has five or six hens in their backyard or slightly bigger operations that are rural but aren't commercial size. A lot of those have been affected by this current outbreak, and that is likely an exposure to wild birds who are carrying the virus and may or may not show any clinical signs from that. So we're trying to get the word out as much as possible, both for our hunting and waterfowl communities to um, be, be safe in how they're handling these animals and um, how, how we're able to detect any further disease spread and really trying to take that opportunity to, to do everything we can to prevent any further spread of the virus or any introduction into, into new species or new areas. Julie, that's a great segue into a more detailed conversation here about this particular topic. So I think that's where we'll go next. And the one thing that I want to do is for people that may not have listened to them or may not be aware, we did have an earlier conversation with uh, on this topic with Dr. Dave Stalneck of the Southeast Wildlife Cooperative Disease Study. I think I got that. I think I got that right. Uh, they were episodes 368 and 369, where we went into a lot of detail on sort of the epidemiology of high path avian influenza. And we're not going to cover as much of that on this particular episode. I do encourage people to go back and listen to that if you want that. But I do want uh, Julie to give you an opportunity at a at a high level to remind folks what is high path avian influenza and why is it a concern. High path avian influenza, we call it HPAI, it gets easier to say, it are virus strains that are extremely infectious 
They're often fatal to chickens, turkeys, and other poultry. And these viruses can spread rapidly from flock to flock. Historically, high path avian influenza hasn't caused a lot of disease in the wild birds that carry it. However, in this 22 outbreak, the 2022 outbreak that we're currently in, things are acting a little bit differently. So we are seeing disease in some bird species this year in in the outbreak in in wild birds as well. So we're we're dealing with with two different components of the outbreak at this point, the disease that it's causing in wild birds and the transmission from wild birds um, along the flyways that could be a threat to our poultry industry and the introductions and the disease that it's causing in the, in the domestic facilities themselves. So it's um, it's a complicated virus. It's causing a, a large amount of resources and folks um, working on it. And, uh, you know, it's, it's been a prolonged outbreak at this point. And, and I don't think that we're out of the woods yet with the numbers that we're finding in our current testing um, as fall and hunting season begins. We're still finding disease in, in a significant amount of our wild birds. So I, I don't think the outbreak is um, close to over at this point. Maybe talk briefly, if you could, about the like the mode of transmission. You know, you talk about waterfowl as a known vector, known carrier of of this virus. What's the the? Uh, I think Dr. Stalneck talked with us about the the fecal oral pathway, the primary pathway, and then talk about the why waterfowl are so I, I guess such such prominent carriers of it related to the water and the mixing of that virus, if I have that, if I remember that correctly. Can you speak to that briefly? Yeah. So avian influenza does circulate in our migratory waterfowl and shorebirds, again, typically causing little to no disease. Since they're migratory birds, this allows the virus to move very efficiently along the migratory flyways in North America. In most cases, Um, These birds are asymptomatic, meaning they don't show any clinical signs. They can shed the virus in their feces, and then there's a fecal-oral transmission route. Because the virus can live for a little while in the environment or in fecal material, people or trucks or uh, boots, dirty boots or shoes can also be another route for the virus to move. It doesn't have to be a a direct contamination from the wild bird to domestic birds, which is why we really want to stress some changes of clothes, cleaning of boots, um, you know, a a degree of separation and a a line of security essentially from from anyone who owns backyard birds, anyone who works um, near commercial poultry or has any type of exposure. We really want to... um, enhance cleaning and biosecurity in those situations. Thank you for that that review. Uh, I, I, there's a there's a lot more that we could talk about there on the kind of epidemiology. I would refer people back to episodes 368 and 369 for more details. I want to uh, talk about some of the commercial losses, some of the risk to the commercial and you know poultry industry and things of that nature. We'll get into a little discussion about uh, risk and what we currently understand about its effect on wild bird populations a little bit later on. But to kind of put it in in perspective, do you have any? current estimates on you know, commercial losses where the number number of birds or dollar amounts associated with the the ongoing outbreak yeah so it's middle of October and our first detection in wild birds in the United States was uh, the laboratory information came in January middle of January so we're about nine months in at this point about 48 million birds. Commercial uh, birds have been affected on infected premises. Uh, we've had 240 commercial flocks 
and 288 backyard flocks across 42 states. At this point, we've had detection of high path avian influenza in 47 states between detections in wild birds and in our commercial. So, so including Alaska, um, it's it spread across most of the continental United States and has been detected in our Canadian provinces to the north. Julie, this is one of those issues where if you don't, if you personally don't see or feel the the impact, it, it's probably easy to not pay as much attention to it. Uh, I was talking with a friend of mine earlier today, and he was telling me that I think it was his hairdresser has a backyard. This is in Canada. His hairdresser has a back or had a backyard poultry flock of chickens, turkeys, guinea fowl. And he was relaying a story that she was telling him how their, somehow their flock got infected and it wiped out the entire, you know, almost four dozen birds in very quick order. So uh, it's, it's a real thing. I mean, you can tell us the numbers and we can read all of those. And until you hear a story from someone that you know or someone who's a, who works at a commercial uh, at a poultry facility or has lost a backyard flock, I think it's easy to kind of think out of sight, out of mind. But, but we're here today talking with you to try to do a better job getting people to realize this is an issue and people, waterfowl hunters are, are a group that can play a very important role. A really important role, both in in allowing um, sampling of their birds if it's in an area where we're targeting or we're trying to get additional samples to understand where the virus is. We are continuing to monitor the viruses to see if there are any changes or mutations in the virus over time and to really keep that information, exactly the information you were just saying, if we have a better idea where the virus is circulating or which wild birds may be carrying it, we can get that information both to our waterfowl hunters, but specifically to to the hairdressers who have backyard flocks, because everything that we can do to inform people helps, you know, trigger those activities that may be more beneficial and, and you know, prevent those transmission. Once it gets into a little flock like that, it's really hard to, to have anything happen other than the loss of the entire, the entire flock. And that can be so devastating to folks with five or 10, a couple of dozen, of course, our larger commercial operations, maybe in the, the thousands. So it's um, it's a great opportunity right now to share that we are still in the midst of this outbreak. And we do, we do encourage everyone to maintain awareness and practice the highest amounts of security and disinfection that they're able to. And and just as a reminder, when we talk about waterfowl being carriers of this or having maybe being infected with it but not suffering severe uh, illness or death, that's not the case with, with let's say, upland game birds, uh, chickens, or certainly backyard um, and, and commercial poultry, right? And, and is that related to just the fact that they don't have sort of natural immunity? Can you remind me of the, the reason why they are so much more susceptible yeah, it's it's an interesting evolution where it seems that the avian influenza viruses have, have kind of grown up with our wild birds. This particular uh, strain, the H5N1 that's circulating, we've known in some format, it's been around since about 2003. So we're about 20 years into having knowledge of, of the current strain or the lineage that, that, um, that came with the current strain has come from. And it doesn't typically cause um, a great amount of disease in our wild birds, but it is so pathogenic. 
so virulent in our in our um, poultry um, situations. And in this current outbreak, we've seen disease in multiple different groups of birds, meaning turkeys, layer um, layer poultry, our broiler industry, just multiple facets of the commercial industry, unfortunately, have been affected um, by this current virus. And and I think you've kind of alluded to this. Um, well, maybe this is before we started recording. You said that someone had asked you how many wild birds were infected by by this, and it's like that. That's an impossible number to get right now. But what do we know? What's our current state of understanding on sort of the uh, the, the the risk to uh, to wild bird populations? So we have uh, almost three thousand detections at this point of high path avian influenza in wild birds, and that's an eighty five different species of birds. And that's a combination of information that, that I just gave in that in that 3,000 number. Maybe about 1,000 were picked up on surveillance. And that's our systemic testing that goes on. And that, again, comes back to our waterfowl hunters to, to allow us to sample apparently healthy birds. These are birds that aren't showing any clinical signs. There's no illness. There's nothing to indicate that they would be carrying it. That can be a little bit of the needle in the haystack, trying to find the virus in birds that look perfectly fine. About 2,000 of these detections are in birds that have shown illness or have died from the disease. So again, this outbreak in 2022 is looking a little bit different than what we've seen in the past. And um, finding the infection across all four flyaways all through the United States at this point in so many different species is, is really important and helps us understand that we still have active infection in multiple wild birds and in a really wide geographic area. Any progress or effort being made to to test for you know past infection using the presence of antibodies in in uh, birds that are being wild birds being tested? We're doing mostly PCR at this point, so that's that's looking for current virus infection. There may be a time, and what what tra- what traditionally happens is over time and with additional exposure, because we've been through these cycles before. We had an outbreak in 2002. We had an outbreak in 2015. Eventually, the virus will simmer down, not cause as much disease, and the birds will gain some natural immunity, which allows the virus to burn out. It's it's a it's the same idea that we're seeing with COVID, and it's the same idea we see with with nasty flu years. That the the virus itself eventually should calm down, and and our our natural systems should build up their immunity, and we we get back to a balance, and the outbreak goes away. Um, it will be from the amount of virus and the current detections that we're getting as of September and October of 2022, we are still seeing a lot of active virus based on PCR. So we're not doing as much antibody testing at this point as still looking for current infection. I have a question about something that I read here recently that avian influenza, HPAI, this current, I think it's this current strain is being in, detected. And I think you mentioned this, but I'm kind of curious what's going on here. Being detected in mammals, I've seen a detection in, a, in at least a dog, maybe multiple dogs, and then dolphins. What's going on with detections in non-avian species? We do have reports, and I'll, I'll correct that we don't have any domestic dogs okay. at this point. We do have wild canids. Okay. So we found it in um, foxes and coyotes. It's also been detected in harbor and gray seals off the coast of Maine, uh, raccoons and skunks. The terrestrial mammals, the land mammals, are are almost all 
carnivores. And so the theory is that they're likely grabbing the opportunity of a, of a free or easy lunch where there may be a sick or dead bird carcass that has virus that's shedding and they consume it or get enough virus in their mouth that it causes that, that oral contamination and allows for um, the virus to, to cause disease. In the mammals, those have generally been juveniles, younger animals that have been infected. And I think that may be a combination of just less immunity and a younger animal in general and potentially a higher dose than an adult animal would get. So they're eating the same size bird, but they weigh less. So it might be a higher, a higher inoculation, if you will, that allows for disease. Uh, many of the mammals that we've seen or the reports that have come in have had uh, neurologic illness, including seizures and tremors. And um, m- most of those animals have succumbed. It's interesting to see that's that's a spillover event. And at this point, we don't believe that there's any ongoing transmission, meaning it's a, a one-time event when that particular fox eats an infected bird. That fox may be, be infected and, and could succumb to the infection, but we haven't seen any evidence of it going from fox to another fox or ongoing transmission in mammals. But it's, but it's certainly something that we're keeping a close eye on with our wildlife partners and um, laboratory information that's coming in. That's a great bit of information there. I had not read all of those details or seen those. So that's really cool. I appreciate you sharing that. And I think at this point, we'll take a break and we will come back on the backside of the break here. We're going to get into some of the surveillance efforts that are ongoing. And then shortly after that, we're going to talk about the real important thing here, which is what's the role of hunters? What's the guidance that we need to be sharing with them that they need to be aware of for their role, both in the surveillance, as well as in minimizing the risk of this spreading uh, into any other potentially risky area. So Hang with us, Dr. Lenock. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Thank you. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories 
and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation, take it outside. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Dr. Julie Lenock of USDA APHIS Wildlife Services, and we're going to resume our discussion about highly pathogenic avian influenza. And Julie, I wanted to pick up with some of the surveillance efforts that are ongoing. Uh, some hunters will probably be aware of this and may have found themselves participating in some of these surveillance efforts. So can you talk about what those surveillance efforts are and what's the goal for them? Yes. Yeah, so our team coordinates a, a national surveillance that, that essentially goes for three seasons following the migratory birds' natural movement. So our seasons start in summer when new birds are born and the animals are leaving their summer breeding grounds and um, starting to, to move for fall migration. Typically in the summer, we do a lot of live bird capture and incorporate sampling from apparently healthy wild birds to look for the detection of any avian influenzas. And these are selected bird species in North America that represent the highest risk of being exposed to or carrying highly pathogenic avian influenza viruses because of their migratory movement patterns. So our biologists in the field will buddy up with state game agencies or wildlife management agencies and trap wild birds, swab them, and then release back into the wild. Um, a lot of times those are done with banding activities or other type of research projects um, where they handle live birds. In contrast, in the fall, we will coordinate with um, hunting seasons, duck hunting seasons primarily, and look at um, options and opportunities to sample hunted birds. And our field biologists, again, just go out on the weekends and meet hunters where they are, um, ask to ask permission for sampling, and we sample those birds and send the hunters off on their merry way and use that information to collect, again, a targeted number of species and specific areas in the country that we look at um, watersheds where we may find the best, the best matching and, and mixing that may be going on of different species and different proximity, both to areas of concern that we might be looking for detection of disease if it's close to a poultry area, for example, or areas where we know that there's a convergence of multiple bird species. And again, we, we've got a better chance at finding the virus um, in those sam in sampling of those hunter harvested birds. So, Julie, you talked about those surveillance efforts and helping you identify areas where the the virus may be on the increase or may be more prevalent. What what examples of like what actions do you take in response to the data that you're getting? Or and it may not be you, or your agency, but anybody else. You mentioned the proximity to commercial poultry facilities. Do they use this information to perhaps tighten down biosecurity measures? What's uh, how's the information used? Absolutely, the information is shared very rapidly. As soon as we have a detection in an area, and certainly into a new area. We share that information with our State Department of Agriculture, our State Department of Wildlife, our industry partners who may, you know, make some changes as far as their biosecurity due to the presence of disease or the risk of disease creeping closer. We also share the information at this point with um, our zoos and other wildlife sanctuaries, petting zoos, um, because of the amount of disease that we've seen in so many different bird species. A lot of our other bird enthusiasts, and if you think of falconers or wildlife rehabilitation centers, 
uh, zoos with spe- special collections or aviaries, they may take different actions with the knowledge that the virus is, is closer or that we're seeing it in different species in their state. So the information is shared rapidly to allow for actions to be taken. That's exactly the point of the surveillance is understanding where the disease is and if we have any changes in the virus over time that could cause it to to cause different types of disease or again like like we talked about the the presence of disease in mammals or in other or in other species so we we share the information widely to allow folks to take that appropriate action that's great that's great we talk often about waterfowl hunters and others in the in the bird conservation community being citizen scientists contributing data in one form or another to state federal universities and and other entities that then take that information to make informed decision to help achieve a better outcome for something that may be in question whether it's understanding of migratory bird behavior or conservation planning or in this case trying to mitigate, mitigate the risk of disease spreading into into commercial facilities or whatever else the zoos the, the case may be. So that's great. Always like to tie the collection of information to some actions and so to help people realize what it is that they're contributing to. So I appreciate that. And so that kind of leads to this idea of the important role that hunters play in this entire effort. You and I uh, first met a few weeks back when Ducks Unlimited and USDA was having conversations about import restrictions related to harvested game birds from Canada. And of course, that entire discussion centered around the role that hunters can play in potentially spreading this virus because of our close interaction with waterfowl. Can you talk about that a little bit in terms of why waterfowl hunters are such an important part of this equation? Hunters have have a very important role, specifically this year. As we said, this 22 outbreak is very widespread in in so many states and, and the provinces in Canada. Hunters are a component to, to let us know when there are morbidity or mortality events. And, and that's just a, a fancy scientific word for detections of sick or dead wild birds. We've had reports come in in areas where we just simply can't get to or, or we don't have boots on the ground. And a lot of times it's it's games folk or, or hunters who are out in the in the wild and in, in you know much more rural or um, more difficult to access areas who let us know that there's there's a snow goose mortality event there's canada geese that are dead or sick or there's there's mallards and that allows us the opportunity to determine if we should test those carcasses if we haven't detected disease in that area and if we should be submitting or finding new information so the information that can come from hunters both just in awareness where we might have sick or dead birds that that potentially haven't been reported yet and then part 2 is that um, information where we have voluntary collection of samples from hunter check stations and other concentrated areas in hunting seasons where waterfowl stage and congregate during migration or over winter. So getting access to those samples and really building up that body of knowledge. We're talking tens of thousands of samples um, this year alone that will be evaluated for the presence of disease. And we just simply can't get that many samples without the participation of our waterfowl hunters. Julie, I wonder if it'd be worth talking for a minute about like likely paths of transmission. When we think about you know the waterfowl hunters and the actions we're going to be asking them to take, and one of the logical questions is, well, how? what is the possible path of transmission from me as a waterfowl hunter or my gear to 
to some to one of the you know, like high risk groups of birds, commercial poultry, backyard poultry. I, I know from talking with Dr. Stalnick, I know that it's very difficult to trace the exact path of of outbreak or infection, but maybe just just speaking in general, our understanding of the virus and what we know about how easily it spreads and what the possibilities are for for hunters and anyone else that interacts with waterfowl to to play a role here. Great question. So avian influenza spreads through direct contact from bird to bird. However, it can also spread to birds via contaminated surfaces and materials, including people's clothing or shoes or hands. We do recommend that hunters handle birds um, in the outside in well-ventilated areas and do um, multiple steps to reduce any transmission if there's virus in that hunting area or in the birds that they've handled to avoid being the the source of the transmission from hunters and handling of harvested birds into any backyard facilities or of course into any commercial facilities or um, any any other areas like we talked about aviary zoos and and other types of um, you know bird collections. Uh, we advise that hunters don't handle any sick or dead birds, especially with bare hands. The basic concept of wa- washing hands with soap and water immediately after handling game and using some alcohol-based um, hand sanitizers and avoiding anything that causes transmission from field dressing back to the house. So bagging clothes, doing a cleaning and disinfection step of the shoes that you used in your game cleaning area, uh, it's a simple step of wearing rubber footwear and clean and disinfect shoes before entering or leaving the area. And we do recommend that folks have dedicated tools, you, you know, the utilities for cleaning the game, whether in the field or at home, and do not use those same tools around any poultry or pet birds or backyard flocks. Julie, I'm going to try to get inside the mind of some of our listeners uh, on this episode. And, you know, as, as I think about it, it's like, okay, well, maybe the risk, I would say that, man, the risk has to be so very low of me spreading it to this place or that place, you know, because I don't, I'm not a high risk individual. I don't high risk movements. Don't wear my waders here or there. I don't, you know, it's, I, I can imagine a whole number of reasons why people might want to downplay the risk of them being a potential source of transmission. But it's not just that that plays into the seriousness of this issue. There may be a low risk of, of, and I'm not saying this is the case, but in, in theory, there may be a low risk of a person or something transmitting a, a, a virus in this case. But if the outcome of that transmission is so profound and so severe, then that fundamentally changes the way we have to think about even a low risk of being a point of transmission. Am I correct in thinking about, the, about it that way? That's a great way. And I actually just went to a talk last week where someone put a little calculation that risk equals the possibility times the consequence. And so just as you were saying, the possibility could be considered low, but the consequence is is dramatic. And just as your example was with the hairdresser, if this virus is introduced into a backyard flock, into a zoo, into a commercial facility, into a wildlife rehabilitation center, the entire property is depopulated if the birds don't naturally succumb to the disease. So all of the birds on the property are depopulated or euthanized. The consequence is catastrophic. And so everything that we, all of us, we can do to avoid any transmission 
And I, I mean, I live in Fort Collins. We have every block on my street has, has one or two properties that have five or six chickens in the backyard. I mean, a lot of people have taken to, to raising local chickens or, you know, having a, a tiny flock in their backyard just for local eggs. If, if the virus gets into those backyards, those birds are going to die um, from the disease. So the consequence is, is staggering. And again, we're talking over 48 million birds that have already been lost in 2022 in the United States. So um, I, I think it's worth taking the, the effort. And we know that it circulates in water, wild waterfowl. So the migratory waterfowl are one of the sources of the virus. Our waterfowl hunters can therefore certainly be exposed or be one of the routes for potential movement. So taking these extra steps really does protect all of the birds in North America. Absolutely. And with that is our as our backdrop, I want to ask you a few questions from a hunter perspective, thinking about uh, what, what do I need to know? What guidance can you give me under a variety of scenarios? You've talked about uh, how to you know, wash our hands, disinfect our hands, have dedicated equipment. And, and I'll, I'll ask you again about some gear here later on. I think you may have already covered that, but I want to be doubly sure. But what about encountering sick or dead birds in the field? What should a hunter do? We do not recommend handling of sick or dead birds. One, because the possibility of virus being there is higher. And uh, we don't want to be the source of any type of a virus movement. Uh, I do recommend, uh, and most states have dedicated hotlines or, or ways of reporting at this point, um, especially if it's a, a larger amount, you know, several birds or, or something that looks particularly alarming, calling your state Department of Wildlife or game agency to report that, those will be evaluated on a case-by-case basis to see if any additional testing is needed or if there's anything that might be done as far as cleanup. Uh, lo- mark the location, especially if it's in a rural or, or remote area, and report that to the state um, wildlife agency in your state, and they will determine if additional testing or any mitigations are needed. Um, all birds are not being tested, of course, because we have to be uh, mindful of our laboratory capacity and the amount of testing that they're doing right now, literally in the tens of thousands. So every single bird will not be tested, but it's it's always good to have knowledge as far as where these are and you know determine if an investigation is needed piece of guidance that I gave earlier this summer and as it bears repeating now is that one of the best ways to kind of equip yourself or to position yourself as a hunter to to be able to do that is to equip yourself now before you go afield with that number. Look it up, have it with you, put it in your phone because I know how it is when you're out there in the field, you're hunting, you've got a lot of different things going on. It's, it's easy to say, well, I'll wait and I'll look up that number later on. Have the number with you at that time so that you can just act on it at that moment. That would be the advice that I give to people. That's a great idea. And I think some simple precautions before they go out, um, as far as having a pair of disposable gloves that you can use when cleaning game, um, some ability, you know, soap and water available to wash your hands and some alcohol-based hand sanitizer, taking an extra step to put a change of clothes and some rubber footwear or a way to clean and disinfect shoes before you enter or leave an area. And taking those steps so that there's there's the possibility of of having the the field clothes and then the clothes you bring back home so that none of the hunters unintentionally bring the virus back with them. Specifically important in areas where where you might own poultry or or backyard or pet pet birds. And then what about bird cleaning and carcass disposal? What's the guidance to hunters on those things? 
We are recommending um, outdoor field dressing in any cases where it's possible, you know, well-ventilated outdoor areas. Um, if it's possible, the recommendation is to double bag any offal and feathers, tie a bag, take off the gloves, and then put another bag around that, and then wash hands and use hand sanitizer. It's important to dispose of those intestines and feathers or any um, discard in a safe area where um, there won't be any exposure to poultry or pet birds and to make sure that any other scavengers or animals can't get into that. Now, what about, and I know you've had this question before, I can't remember, not on this episode, but I'm pretty sure I've, I've seen an email where this was discussed. What, what advice then do you give to, let's say, outfitters, people that may be processing for the sake of their clients a large number of birds? Is there any situation in which um, burying the carcasses to a sufficient depth becomes the, the preferred strategy? What's the, uh, what's the thinking on all of this? It's hard to do a one size fits all, and certainly for areas where they may be processing, you know, hundreds. I'm guessing hundreds or thousands of birds. Um, appropriate disposal is somewhere where we don't have exposure to scavengers, um, and again, we have seen the disease spill over into foxes, skunks, raccoons, coyotes. Um, so, so avoiding those type of exposure. A deeper burial is a possibility, but if it's feasible that we can get those into the trash or um, double bagged where there's not going to be um, any ongoing exposure is probably the best route that we can take. And then going back to the, the guides or commercial, being really cautious as far as cleaning and storage of gear, including waders or ATVs or decoys, washing those tools and surfaces with soap and water, letting them dry, and then a disinfection with a, a 1 to 10 bleach solution is a really good and um, very, you know, great way to disinfect and make sure that we're not potentially, if, if decoys are used in one watershed and then you, know, you go to another area, we certainly don't want any of the equipment being a, a, a route for the virus moving through the areas either. And then here's here's an interesting one one for you, and I know that situation is out there in a lot of different places. A waterfowl hunter who has a retriever that they take with them, and then they also have backyard poultry. What guidance do you give to them on how to? Yeah, you know, I'm guessing wash their uh, wash their dog after they get back from every hunt, or or keep it separate from the the backyard poultry. What's the guidance there? Both of those are, are reasonable. And, and I, I do want to reiterate, we have not had avian influenza detection in domestic dogs in 2022. There's, we get that question very frequently, and especially with the recent findings where it's been in wild canids, uh, foxes and coyotes, is there a possibility that we could see it in dogs? I can only answer that we haven't seen it yet. Um, if there's an obvious sick or, or dead um, bird, I would be pretty careful about having a retriever have that bird um, in their mouth. But And um, certainly if, if a dog were to, to get ill, we would work with the veterinary staff. But again, we have not seen detection of this virus in domestic dogs for the outbreak. Uh, I don't think it's a bad idea to have those dogs get a get a good bath and get a dunk. They could certainly have it on their on their fur, on their feet, especially if they're in waterways. And um, in a case where a, a waterfowl hunter also owns backyard um, backyard poultry, we would want to avoid any exposure or any movement the same way we would, same as footwear or clothes or any other equipment, keep the dog away from the poultry as well until they're cleaned up. 
Um, you just gave me one additional thought. It's not a bad idea to run your car through a car wash on your way home and um, avoid, you know, just get those get those truck wheels and the rest of the equipment on out. Certainly, our responders in the field we run through car washes almost every day. We're given we're given the car wash industry a little bit of a boost this year with the amount of washing of our tr- our own trucks that we have going on right now. Yeah, I would imagine so. So, Julie, one other thing that I wanted to ask, I want to make sure we get it out there, is what's our latest understanding on the risk to humans, either from physical contact with a potentially infected bird or consuming uh, harvested waterfowl that might have it? Avian influenza viruses rarely infect people. We've had one possible case in the United States this year, but we do certainly advise that hunters still protect themselves. And some of those are relatively easy. Do not eat, drink, or put anything in your mouth or around your face while you're cleaning or handling game. We want to avoid any cross-contamination of raw meat to cooked meat. And in general, go with the basic standards of cooking game meat thoroughly. Poultry should always reach an internal temperature of 165 degrees to kill parasites and organisms. And just general safety precautions of washing hands and washing equipment to avoid any exposure to to people and to avoid any um, contamination when handling raw meat or um, field dressing the birds. Now, Julie, how many times have people told you that, you know, if you cook a wild bird to 165 degrees, it's it's not worth eating? (laughs) That's a poultry recommendation. Yeah, yeah. You know, I kind of have to follow up with that just for my own credibility. So, but no, I understand what you're saying. That's a CDC recommendation. believe that's right. CDC recommendation or is that a USDA? Kind of curious there. That's a USDA recommendation on the on the standards for poultry temp. And and I'm I understand that that's the guidance you have to provide on this also. And and so I appreciate you doing so. And anything else that we need to talk about here? I'm looking at my list and I think this has been a fantastic conversation, but I want to make sure that if there's anything else that we need to discuss, uh, we do so. I, I just really want to thank your your cooperation and the involvement for this. It's a it's a critical juncture in, in this outbreak. And, and we're certainly still finding active virus in so many areas and in so many different species of birds. We cannot do this on, on our own as a, as a federal response or as a state response. It really does take the general public. Um, of course, our industry and, and stakeholder partners on the, on the poultry side are, are well aware and are, are working you know, diligently to prevent virus from entering their facilities. But our hunters provide a key um, component right here, both in us understanding where disease and sick birds may be and in helping us continue to gain those samples so we understand what's going on with the virus. So I just appreciate the the time um, to connect with these folks that, that might not always hear from us on the science side that we're very happy to have their participation. We need it for our surveillance and we certainly want to continue to understand what's going on with the virus and, and do our best to mitigate any additional losses on our on our poultry side. Well, the feeling is mutual. We appreciate the the cooperation and collaboration of USDA APHIS and, and all the different departments within within USDA. Nothing that we do within this organization or the conservation community is done unilaterally. We're, we are all about partnerships and, and y'all been a great one and appreciate that. And uh, thank you so much for your time today. It's, it's obvious that you are you know a few things about this and I'm glad we have you on our side. I'm glad you we have you in the game on this. Thank you so much. Appreciate the time. And uh, hopefully we're not talking several months down the road, but uh, appreciate all the work you folks are doing on the conservation side as well. Absolutely. Thank you, Julie. Take care. 
A special thanks to our guest on today's episode, Dr. Julie Lenock, National Coordinator for APHIS Wildlife Disease Program. We greatly appreciate all of her time and expertise and help in this very important situation. As always, we thank our producer, Chris Isaac, for the great job he does on these episodes, getting them out to you. And to you, the listener, we thank you for your time and for your support and commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. Stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside.